You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining us for Rocks Across the Ponds. Welcome to Curling Series. This is a group of episodes meant to help people who might be watching curling for the first time during the Olympics in Beijing and help them better understand just what on earth is going on in this unique sport that we know and love. Uh, I know it took me forever to really understand what was going on when I first saw the sport during the 2006 Olympics. And I also know the questions that I get when I teach Learn to Curls during the Olympic rush. So hopefully people will find this series useful and hopefully it's something that our regular listeners can pass along to their friends who might just now be finding the sport. In our first episode in this series, we went over the setup for the Olympics uh, and how the games are played. Additional episodes go over the terms and jargon you'll hear from players and broadcasters, as well as the history of the sport uh, and the teams that are participating, as well as much more. But in this episode, we're going to focus on what you'll see on the ice, particularly the strategy the teams will use to try and capture gold in this series to help us make sure that we're giving you something that can introduce newcomers to the sport. We have invited some friends of ours who are familiar with curling, but aren't complete nerds like Jonathan and I to come on and call a timeout on us whenever we fall short of giving a good enough explanation, or we're using terms that need defining, or we're just assuming too much knowledge. And joining us today is my friend, Alex Friedman. And Alex is the voice of the Oklahoma City Dodgers. They are the AAA affiliate of the Los Angeles Dodgers. Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Absolutely. Glad to be here. And if that voice sounds familiar, that is the voice you heard in the intro. Alex was nice enough to, to do our intro for us. Still waiting for the royalty check, by the way. Yeah, uh, 10% of nothing is, is still nothing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so Alex, thanks uh, thanks so much for, for joining us here, and we do want to kind of get to know you a little bit before we move on, so can you just tell everybody where you're from and what it was like growing up there? Yeah, originally from St. Louis, uh, pretty pretty uh, average uh, life growing up, so um, big big fan of the, the local sports teams growing up and, and all that stuff, and uh you know, as I think like a lot of people where they grow up, they don't like it when they grow up, but once they get older, they, they have a, a better appreciation for it. All right. And then you, you're also, uh, it's a, it's a very, in, it's a very internet joke, but you are actually a Medill grad, right? <laughs> I am indeed. Yes. Went to, <laughs> went to Northwestern university. Yes. Yep. Everyone who does a sports podcast uh, likes to joke that they are a Medill grad, but we have an actual Medill grad here with us. So I think we've uh, I think we've leveled up as a sports podcast. And Twitter <laughs> being Twitter, I, I do have in my bio that I am a non-annoying Northwestern graduate. So hopefully Ryan can vouch for me in, in, in that area. I can. You're a you're a self-deprecating Medill grad, which is awesome. Um, so tell us, uh, when did you first see curling and what about it interested you? I'm not sure if I could tell you when I first saw it. Probably, uh, like most people who are listening to this or going to during the Olympics, would, would be my guess. Um, I do remember there was one 
we did, there was whatever year, I think my senior year, 2006, there was a winter Olympics and, and being seniors in college and, you know, not, not doing a whole lot of things of important substance. I do remember watching a lot of the winter Olympics that year. And I'm sure curling was definitely part of that in addition to hockey. Um, so that was probably my first exposure to it. I think I had heard about it, knew kind of the general idea of it, but, but never really watched it. Um, I had a brief foray in Minnesota shortly after college graduation. That's where I first was really kind of exposed to it. And then it went on the back burner for several years and then was uh, in Oklahoma City where Ryan used to live. And, and Ryan was very involved with the local curling club there. Um, so he knew I had uh, more than, I guess, a passing interest in it and did that for a couple of years. Haven't done it for a while now. It's kind of difficult with my job and that six months out of the year, I'm not available and just kind of hard to jump back into it. And even though I'm not a competitive person, I want to, if I'm going to participate in something, I want to do it well. And obviously curling's not like basketball where you can just find a, a hoop and get up some shots or, or anything like that. So I uh, haven't done it for a few years now, but, but still definitely have uh, an interest in it and uh, like uh, watching it occasionally when it's on TV. That's right. I did drag you out to the Oklahoma curling club and we were league champions. Yes. No, now, and uh, as I said before we started recording, I definitely did not contribute to that. Uh, maybe maybe my sweeping did, but but probably not my shots as a lead. No, that was mainly our friend Mark No, who kind of <laughs> dragged us to, <laughs> to a league title <laughs> there. Uh, so today we're talking about strategy. Like me, you have only, I think, well, you said you were kind of exposed to it in Minnesota, but lately on, we've only known curling on hockey ice. So this is perfect because strategy on strategy when you're curling on hockey ice is mainly throwing the same shot over and over and over again. Yeah, and I think there are some things that we're going to talk about and that I've seen on TV as well that the teams that are at the Olympic level and obviously really high levels will do that I didn't know people did because <laughs> that's not how it was necessarily played. You know, like you said, at a at a, a, a hockey rink on hockey ice at a at a makeshift curling club. Yep. So, is there something? in particular that you're hoping to take away from today to kind of impress your friends as we're watching the Olympics? Maybe knowing like who the favorites are, uh, what kind of style certain teams are known for, who's like the team to watch, things like that. We'll definitely get into that. We'll have Jonathan give us uh, some of the teams that are more aggressive, that are going to play more high scoring games and which teams are going to be the ones that are going to try to keep things clear. Um, and, and have low scoring games. So we'll get into it. Um, Jonathan, can you explain styles of play and like what's, what's aggressive and what's defensive? Yeah. Okay. So I think first thing to say is everything I'm going to talk about today is for TV level for Olympic level. So yes. this is not a strategy guide for club curlers and certainly no. exactly as Alex said before, what you see on TV won't work in club play. Uh, I've, I have a running joke that anytime like a big events on TV, I go back to the club and there's people just trying ridiculous shots they can't make. And uh, they often lose because of that. So um, at, at the top level, they're making their shots 85, 90, sometimes even 95% of the time. So, and your typical club curler is probably making shots. If I'm being generous, 40 to 50% of the time, sometimes less than that. So there's a big, big gap in, in shot making that really changes the strategy and might, might use it at 
club versus pro level. But um, yeah, so you want style of play. So the first thing is offense versus defense is kind of the, I think that's the hardest concept for new viewers to wrap their heads around. And so the way I'd say you should think about it is if a team is playing takeout, so if they're removing the opponent's stones from play, that's a defensive call. And if they're playing a draw shot, so they're trying to put one of their shots in play without removing another, the opponent's stone, then that's offense. So offense is normally a draw shot, soft shot, just putting a, a stone in a, a specific position and a hit or a takeout is defense. And so the easiest way to tell is if you're watching the game evolve and a team's playing a lot of takeouts in succession, then they're trying to defend. And if they're playing a lot of draws, they're they're planning to attack or, or try to score points. So what determines a style of play? Is it, is it regionalized? Is it just personal preference? Is it what they were exposed to when they were, when they were young? What kind of influences what style of play a, a particular team will choose to, to, to stick to? I mean, I'd say skill set is the biggest thing. So if someone's a really strong, the team has a, like a really strong draw players, they'll obviously be a lot more offensive. If they're really good takeout players, they'll be a lot more defensive. So, you know, if I take to pull kind of two legends of the game, um, say the Howard brothers, so both Glenn and Russ Howard, they were masters of offensive curling in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s. So they'd play a lot of draws and try to kind of score lots of big ends. And Kevin Martin was famous for being the master of defensive curling. Like he so so famous, in fact, that he kind of you know started calling throw throughs after the the first end and his first Briar win. This was basically I'm going to peel everything now that I've got a two nothing lead. What does that mean? Like so, peel everything just means that he basically he scored two in the first end and then he decided I'm going to hit everything for the next three hours and you're not going to score. So it's it's like any other sport. We have a defensive team once they get a lead they're focusing entirely on stopping the other team from scoring. Kevin Martin was doing the same thing, but like an extreme level where he was like, I'm just going to hit every stone you play, remove everything from play, even my own stones. So there's nothing in play. And he'd kind of get these chants of boring from the crowd. Cause it was really boring to watch, but he, his team had basically mastered the defensive skill sets. And so they could basically defend a two, nothing lead over the course of nine ends. And so why can't they do that now? So because of that, they brought in something called the free guard zone. Initially, it was a three rock free guard zone in Canada and a four rock free guard zone in the world. And now today it's a five rock free guard zone. And what that means is you cannot remove stones in front of the rings for the first five shots of a given end. And that's there to to stop a team from just trading hits up and down for three hours and making it a very boring thing to watch. So how does that affect strategy? So if you can't remove the first five stones, um, that means that if even if I'm behind in the game, I can get at least two stones in front of the rings called guards, and I can use those throughout the end to try to generate some points that way. Whereas before, the teams got so good, they would just hit those away and you'd have nowhere to hide your stones or score any points. Okay, so I guess the next big discussion is kind of what dictates what kind of strategy a team is going to play, and that kind of is determined by which of the teams is throwing last in the end, right? Which team has the hammer? 
I mean, Hammer's part of So, okay, in terms of the factors, yes, Hammer's a very big part of it. The scoreboard really matters. And then also, like, the skills of the team. So some teams, as I said before, they, they favor a draw style, and some teams favor a hitting style. So they're going to want to dictate the style of play that way. Um, but in terms of, like, game situations, if you're behind... Uh, you're obviously going to want to try to play more aggressively because you need to score points to close the gap. And then the hammer really matters in the sense that the team with the hammer has a scoring advantage because they're, the hammer means whoever has the last stone, they're, they're going to throw the last shot. And so because of that, because they're likely to, to make the last shot, it's almost as if you have one point in the in the bag. So teams with the hammer are often trying to score two points or more whenever they have hammer. And so they'll manipulate the end to try to either score two points or to score no points. That's kind of what they're trying to do. So they'll, they'll either be very aggressive or sometimes they might be defensive depending on the context. So would you consider, and it seems to me just by watching it, that if you have hammer and you're only getting one point, is that a sense like a wasted end, even though you are scoring? Yeah. So in curling, there's actually a term for that. It's called being forced. So at the highest level, if you don't have hammer, while you'd love to steal, so if you steal a point, it means you score a point without the hammer. And that's really good. That's like fantastic. But that doesn't happen that often, maybe 10, 20% of the time at the highest level. So what you're looking to do is force a team, which means you're trying to hold them to only scoring one point. And then you get the hammer back and then you try to score two points with uh, your hammer when you get it back. So you'll hear teams talk about flipping the hammer, which means basically we're going to let the other team score a point. And in exchange for that, we want to get the hammer back and then try to score two when we have it. So you can think of the hammer a bit like either whoever has serve in a tennis match or whoever has possession of the ball in a football match. That's what the hammer is. It's basically you have the scoring advantage, though you certainly can still give up a point. As in tennis, you can still have your serve broken. That's what a steal would be. Ideally, what you want to do is try to convert that hammer into two or more points. So let's start with that. How do you do that? If you have the hammer, how, what strategies are you going to try to utilize to score two or more? Okay, so that's really good. So one thing you'll notice is... Uh, teams will either try to put stones off to the side or they'll try to put stones right in the middle. And the team with hammer is often trying to get a stone off to the side, which to to a lot of beginner curlers will seem very counterintuitive. Why would you put a stone off on the edge at, at say, three o'clock or two o'clock in the rings you imagine as a clock when the button, which is the the closest points you can score, is always wide open? And what the teams are, what the teams with hammer are trying to do is lock a point in over there that's guaranteed as their second point, and then with their last shot, score the one point. So they'll spend a lot of time trying to do things like split the rings, which means they'll put one stone on one side of the rings, the other stone on the other side, and try to leave things wide open, or roll their stones out to the edge to try to keep the point over there and try to draw the play off to the edges and try to get their one point locked in over there and then score their second point with their last shot. So that's that's what they're trying to do. And then conversely, the team without hammer is going to try to junk it up in the middle, right? Yeah, so exactly. They're going to try to bring the point, the stones into the middle, and they're trying to do two things with that. So one, 
the first thing you'll often hear commentators talk about shrinking the scoring zone. And what they mean by that is that the more stones they get around the button, so the center of the ring, uh, the harder it is for the opponent to try to get a stone in there, right? So ideally, they want to shrink it to the po- point where it gets absolutely impossible for the other team to get a stone in there, and then they'll they'll steal a point. But often what they end up doing is trying to force it so they can only get one stone in there, and then they get the force working. So you'll notice that without the team without Hammer will try to put as many of their stones as possible in the forefoot, in the front of the rings. They'll put a guard in front. It's called a center line guard, so right in front and center. And they're doing all that to try to bring the play towards the middle of the rings. So the lead on a curling team is the person throwing the first two rocks. And sometimes those shots don't get shown on television coverage, but those rocks are the ones that are going to determine kind of how an end is going to play out and whether a team is being aggressive or defensive. Isn't that right, Jonathan? Yeah, so I mean, I know Alex played lead, so I think I think a lot of again club players and casual fans don't think much of the lead, but actually, the lead's a very important position. So if I can draw like another sports analogy, they're a bit like the left tackle in football. So like diehard football fans know how important that position is, but casuals don't really care about that person. The leads the lead has two very important jobs. One is sweeping, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But their other job is basically to consistently put the first couple of stones in good positions to set up the end. And so the shots aren't spectacular, but if they miss that first shot, the other team gets a massive momentum advantage. So what they're normally trying to do is put guards in front of the rings. So if you don't have hammer, they'll be putting guards on the center line. So right in the middle. And the idea there is they're trying to give themselves something later on they can hide behind in the middle of the rings that will make it hard for the other team to take them out. And that's the lead for the team that does not have Hammer, right? For the team that does not have Hammer. And if they have Hammer, sometimes they'll play something called a corner guard, which is a guard off to the wings that they'll try to hide a stone behind to try to get that second point locked in that they can use to score their their two points. So... A couple of things to kind of watch out for. So one is how tight the team plays the rock. So there's what's called a low guard and there's a high guard. So a low guard is very close to the rings and a high guard's far up. And one of the reasons you play a high guard is that that over the course of the end tends to generate a lot more offense. If you Often if you see the first stone being a very high guard, it's a sign that there's going to be a lot of stones in play that end. Tight guards are normally set up, uh, so like the, the circus shots often that you see, the highlight shots, they'll often involve what's called a run back, where you run a guard in front of the ring into stones in the house and try to knock a bunch of stones out. So those tight guards are being set up for potential run backs later in the end. So that's one of their functions too. My question is, like Ryan mentioned, sometimes the broadcast will just join and you'll see a couple of stones in front of the ring and you talked about the difference between the high guards and low guards but if someone's just flipping on how are they going to know the difference between oh that was a good guard shot or that was not a good guard shot especially depending on if the team you know one whichever team has hammer or not so okay if you don't have hammer one really good clue is is the guard touching the center line so it's that's a very key position is it touches the center line 
And then you actually want it to be either really close to the rings or very far up. So it's either going to be within two to three feet of touching the rings, or it's going to be 10 feet in front of the rings. Anything in between is a bit trickier. Like the top teams will try to avoid that position as much as possible. Uh, just because if you get too many guards too close, the other team can just start hitting everything and they can remove all the guards. What the top teams want is like a lot of separation between their two guards to make double peels uh, impossible and to, to stop a, a team from kind of clearing everything out on one shot. All right. So Alex, if they come back from commercial and you see a high, a, couple, a few high guards, high corner guards and high center guards, do you think there's going to be a lot of, a lot of rocks in play that end, or do you think it'll be wide open with not a rocks at lot, not a lot of rocks in play that end? I was not told there was going to be a quiz on this. Yeah, I know. It's um, yeah. <laughs> I'm turning the tables. You're the only, uh, you're the only friend we've had on that I've messed with like this. Oh boy. Um, I'm trying to go back. Jonathan did explain this. He did. Uh, um, and now I'm trying to remember because it is obviously been a lot of information that has been, been coming my way. <laughs> I believe that if it's high, you would probably see fewer uh, rocks in play. So it's actually the opposite. So oh, Jonathan, ex- explain, why it's, explain why it's the opposite. So uh, one way to think about it is... Um, the margin of error on a curling shot. So if a stone's very far away, the margin of error of hitting that stone onto another stone gets significantly more difficult. And so the, re- the, the other defensive team, what they try to do with the guards, they try to use them to hit other stones in combination to do take two stones out at a time, which is called a double takeout or three stones. So the further up those stones are, the harder that shot is, and so the more likely teams that are respond by playing more draws or more soft shots, and then very quickly you'll see the end turn into a very, what I call a junky end, which means like a lot of stones in play. And with the teams in the Olympics, they're so good that, yeah, it's great to have a high guard if you're wanting to be offensive, but if it's too high, these teams are good enough that that guard might as well not exist and they can still get around that and uh, make a takeout shot around a guard, which is very, very hard to do, nearly impossible to do for a club player on club ice, but for these players is very easy to do. Yeah. Uh, and and Alex, you were asking about styles of play and which teams um, like high-scoring games. Uh, Jennifer Jones, who's the skip of the Canadian women's team, Jennifer Jones loves a high guard, loves being able to put a lot of rocks in play. They're one of my favorite teams to watch in terms of for for picking up strategy because uh, they do. They like a lot of rocks in play and that's that's what I like to that's what I like to watch. Yeah. So the other thing to know about guards is what I call the other pattern you'll see is it's called a staggered guard or sometimes they'll call it a Christmas tree. So it'll be one guard covering half of another guard. And you'll see this pattern a lot. And that's very significant because if the, the guards are staggered, it's impossible to remove those two guards and the throwing stone. So, so it's basically the other team is going to leave a guard there afterwards. And if you can hide a stone under a staggered guard, the other team's not able to, to do a run back and remove it from play. So teams will spend a lot of time manipulating the stones to try to get these angles set up to make it impossible for those run backs. So it's... Like, so you'll see, uh, so the thing that I'd say to watch for is watch for one guard overlapping another, because that makes the angles impossible. 
The other thing you'll sometimes hear is what's called a Christmas tree pattern, which is like three stones in a row, each kind of overlapping. And since we're recording this just around Christmas, it's appropriate. So, um, and the Christmas tree pattern, again, it creates an angle that the other team can't remove the stone. It's the back of the Christmas tree. So a lot of the positioning is just trying to set up these angles that, and patterns that the top teams will recognize, but often the fans will just look messy or, or meaningless. So I'd say one thing to look for early on is a Christmas tree pattern. As long as we're talking about angles, it seems to me at least that I think a huge difference for someone that's going to be watching this is the large majority of the time, we just get that overhead shot of, of yeah. the house in how the angles there in reality are not like they are for the person who's taking that shot and what they are at ice level. Yes. That's so that's absolutely true. Any, I mean, I've been curling for longer than I care to admit and probably two, three times a game. I'll see something on the overhead camera and I'll be like, they'll be like that shots there. And I'm like, I'm not sure it is. But then when they cut to another angle, like, Oh yeah, it's wide open. So the, the, the camera angles overhead are definitely deceptive. Uh, both in terms of what's available, because you've got to remember, like often if something's off to the side, the, the thrower is throwing from down the middle. So they may be able to see everything for something that might look like it's behind a stone. And also the other thing that's a bit deceptive is because the camera's right over the center point. Sometimes the stones look like they're out of the rings, but they're actually in the rings just because the angle is slightly different from what the camera is giving you. So you're absolutely right. The camera can deceive on that. And we'll jump we'll jump ahead a little bit. I did want to ask about this before we get into kind of the strategies that you use when you don't have the hammer is one of the things that'll trick you up is you'll look at that overhead shot and you'll see maybe one team has a stone has like the two stones closest to the middle and to the untrained eye, it seems like that team has the advantage, but Jonathan angles can kind of determine which team is actually looking good for an end. Can you talk about that and talk about why it's not necessarily important to always have the rock closest to the middle? Yeah, I think, again, that's like a common mistake that, um, well, both fans make, but also beginner club curlers make. And because I'm a mean person, I will often, when I'm playing a club team, I'll often let them have shot rock and then I'll just build an end around them, by which I mean, they can have shot, I'll sit the second second closest to the middle, third and fourth, or f sometimes even fifth, and then just wait till a point later in the end to remove their stone when it's an advantageous. And I flip that score from one point to them to four or five points to me. Uh, at the high level, you're, you're not going to catch the opposing skip napping that that often. But what, what does happen, you'll notice, is they'll be very concerned about, there may be a stone that's just what they call a biter. So it's just nibbling a part of the rings off in the side. And they may be very concerned about that because they know that exactly as Ryan said, even if they have say even two stones close to center, there's an easy double there for the opponent. And all of a sudden they've shifted it from two points for them to two points for the other team. So one key thing with the strategy is to look at not just who's sitting shot, but how many stones the other team has in scoring position as well. Cause often it only takes one good shot to flip the situation from scoring one or two for you to scoring multiple for the other team. And a great example of that is the infamous five that the U S scored in the eighth end of the 2018 gold medal game against Sweden before the last shot, Sweden, I know they were sitting one, they may have been sitting two, 
but two. the they were yeah. sitting two. But yeah. the one rock was in the open and left a relatively easy double for the U.S. to make to score five. I say relatively easy. It's easy when you're playing in your Thursday night league, but when you're throwing it to probably guarantee yourself a gold medal in the Olympics, it becomes a little bit harder, but they were able to convert and score five since they had four other rocks around those two Swedish stones. So I just wanted to kind of talk about that and talk about how really you need to look for angles. Like, is there anything that people can look for to kind of determine oh, this team is looking good right now, but the angles actually favor the other team? Because that is something that you will hear announcers say, is the angles favor such and such. Is there something we can look for that can kind of signify that? Yeah, I'm trying to think of like how I'd explain the pattern to people. But basically, okay, so sometimes you hear curlers say they want stones edge to edge, which means they want the two stones parallel to each other opposite sides of the ring. Does that make sense? Like completely flat. So they're, you can almost draw a line from one to the other. And the reason they like that is because then it's impossible. The angle is impossible for you to remove one stone and take the other one out. But like how, how far away should they be then? Uh, if you're edge to edge and you're like, say, four feet or more apart, there's no double there. It's impossible. But let's say if you're three feet together and one stone's even half a stone above the other stone, there's a pretty makeable double there. Like for those, these teams, it's a pretty easy double. So you get the sense, you get the sense that that's six inches there of moving a stone. So it's perfectly parallel as opposed to just slightly ahead of the other can make all the difference in the world between the other team having no shot and then having a pretty easy shot. And so I mean, one of the things is that I think Ryan's interesting about the Schuster shot is probably to a lot of casual fans, they didn't realize how good a situation Schuster was in after Adin throwed that shot. But if you listen to Adin on the microphone, he was cursing because yeah. he knew he'd left yep. <laughs> he'd left Schuster he a shot like that, right? He knew. They all knew, yeah. right? And they knew yeah. that you can't leave it at that level, you can't leave a shot like that. And and sure enough they cracked it. All right. So let's talk about if you're the team that does not have hammer, what other than, you know, crowding the middle, getting the play uh to the middle of the rings, to the middle of of the sheet, what are some of the other uh, strategies that you can implement to try to keep the other team from scoring two. Okay, so the big thing I'm going to call it the stack. There's there's different names for this, but I like to call it the stack. So, and this is basically your standard setup. Like you will see this probably 75% of the time in a game. And what it is is the team without hammer. They will first throw a center guard up. And they're doing that for a couple of reasons. If they, if they don't have hammer and they put the first stone in the ring, the other team's likely to hit it. So they don't want to do that unless they're ahead. So they'll put the center guard in front because the other team can't touch that. And the way a lot of teams respond to that center guard is they'll come around the center guard and try to get to the forefoot first. So try to get to the middle close to scoring first. And so their idea is we'll beat that team to the middle and then it'll be tough for them to to score. The other team then will often respond by drawing right along on top of the, on top of the stone, the team with hammer displayed and kind of sit right on top of it and freeze on it. And so their thinking is if we freeze on top of their stone, it's going to be very tough for them to score too. So the pattern now would be one center guard by the team without hammer, one stone top four or top button for the team with hammer, then a stone frozen on top of it for the team without hammer. 
And then often the team with ha- with hammer will then come down and sit on top of it again. So you'll end up with a pattern of it be one stone for one team, another stone for the other team, another stone for the other team, and a guard in front. And that may go on for like four, five, six, sometimes even seven shots. And what both teams are looking for is a very subtle advantage in an angle where they can then hit the stones in the in the pile and try to spill them so they're sitting two or one in a very advantageous position. So the first thing I wrote is like, this is very hard to have happen in club play. Like you could try it if you're <laughs> people listening to this. I, I mean, I can't even recall the last time I've got a stack going <laughs> in like my Tuesday night league or whatever. Right. It's just, it's even with like decent club curlers, it's very hard for the top level. Those, those players are so good at putting the stone exactly where they want that probably 60, 70, 80% of the ends, the first five shots will be exactly in that pattern. And it, it, and really all both teams are looking for is like little subtle differences in the angles. And so it's maybe a quarter of a rock angle, a half a rock, maybe a little bit of space. And then they'll look for a way to use that angle to try to set up a favorable position for them. So that's the basic, basic setup. Is there any questions about that? I would maybe ask though. So if you're the team without hammer though, you can basically yeah. live giving up one point. Exactly. Yeah. So you can live with giving up one point, but if you can start thinking with these angles, so let's say they're one and you're two and they're three, you're worried that they'll find an angle to squeeze your second stone out and they could sit two or three by doing that. So that's where it gets dangerous, but it's also very aggressive. So to have six, seven, eight stones all piled into the forefoot, it does mean that if there's a, if a, an angle there for either team, one team could score a whole bunch pretty quickly. But both teams do this to play very aggressively to try to get to get an edge like that. Do you want to talk? All right, Jonathan, when do you bail? So let's explain what what that is, how it, and how it's accomplished, and when when your point of no return might be. Okay, that's actually a really good question. So here, teams talk about bailing, and by that they mean they're basically they're going to switch from putting stones in place or drawing to taking out and trying to minimize how many points they give up. So before, so now we have something called the five rock free guard zone, which basically means for the first five stones, you can't remove stones in front of the ranks. And so that really dictates when teams can bail now. So it's basically, so basically the, the normal bail shot would be a run back, which means hitting a guard in front into all those stones in the stack and try to spill a lot. So maybe try you know, the, the, the top teams could spill three or four stones on a single shot. No problem. So you can't do that now until the sixth or seventh stone of an end. So until you're halfway into the end. So most teams now will bail either on the second, second stone or on the third's first stone. That's kind of where they'll make a decision to switch from offense to defense. <clears throat> and, Especially on the men's side, you could have, say, you could start off with like eight stones in play. And then two stones later, there could be no stones in play because both teams will just start throwing hits and spilling everything. And you'll have, you know, four stones for each team go away very quickly. And then you're looking at a blank end, which means no points are scored. Do you want to talk about blanks, Ryan? Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Okay. Do you you know what a blank is, Alex? I I do, but... You know, I was going to bring up how that's definitely something that you don't see it occurring in club. If if it does, it happens by total coincidence, as opposed to right. 
You see it in Oklahoma City because no one can get the rock into the rings because the ice is so frosty. So we've had that. We've had that happen. Yeah. But that's something that you'll you'll see intentionally, you know, at the high level of play that you would never see intentionally at, at a curling cup. Kind of going back to what I said at the beginning that, you know, there's things that I didn't even know existed until, you know, watching it on TV. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, you're absolutely right. It's very hard at the club level to blanket end, which means no one scores unless everyone misses, which does happen. <laughs> But assuming people can get some stones in the in the rings, it's very unlikely you'd have a blank end at the club level. At the professional level, they're using the blank ends very strategically. So the, the first thing, as I remember if I said before, the goal if you have hammers is to score two or more. So if it gets to the point where you can't score two, your preference then is to try to score nothing. Because then you get to keep the hammer for the next end and try to score your two again. So when I talk about flipping the hammer, the team with hammer, if they can't score their two, what they want to do is hold on to hammer and they do that by blanking. So often the team to bail will be the team with hammer because they're trying, they'll get to a point where they're like the angles aren't a good setup here. We don't see an easy way for us to score two. So we're just going to try to remove as many stones as possible and blank the end and, and get away that way. So that's one way they'll blank. The other time they'll blank is because they'll try to set up having the hammer late in the game for a favorable situation. The most favorable would be having the hammer at the end of the game. So you'll see teams in like the ninth end or the eighth end, they'll blank it just so they know they have hammer when they're with the last rock of the game. So that's a, that's a huge, huge advantage. And the five rock rule, if you watched curling at the 2018 Olympics, that Olympics was played with the four rock free guard zone. So you couldn't remove a guard until after four rocks had been played. Well, they changed that rule after 2018. And for this Olympics, you cannot remove a guard until after five rocks have been played in the end. And that has made it a lot easier to score your two. Am I being a little too simplistic there, Jonathan, or is that fair to say? I'd say, okay, I'd say there's a pretty big divide now between the women's game and the men's game because of this, because so I know you have to do is look at the Canadian Olympic trial finals. So they just had these back in November. They're the trials in Canada to determine who represents Canada at the Olympics and the women's final, lots of offense, lots of points scored, very few blanks, lots of change of momentum, lots of rocks in play from start to finish and not an easy shot at the end. Um, the men's game, between Brad Gushu and Brad Jacob, the Battle of the Brads, that had a lot of blanks. And that was entirely because those two teams were so afraid of making the slightest mistake they would give a two or a three, and they knew at that point the game would be over. And to be honest, the top the top men's teams at the Olympics, it'll be pretty similar, I imagine. The men's gold medal game, I imagine, will be fairly low scoring. I think the women's game will be a little bit more, I think, like better to watch, more fun to watch, to be honest. I definitely agree with that. But the reason I was asking about being able to score two a little bit easier with the five rock rule is previously we saw teams, like you said, going into this in-game strategy, the big debate in curling was always, do you prefer to be down one with the hammer going into the last end or up one without the hammer going Mm. into the last end? And preference there was about 50-50. 
Well, now you see most of the really top teams now almost all prefer being down one, but having the hammer because it's a little easier to get your two with with the five rock free guard zone. Because we have seen teams, we've seen teams intentionally give up a steal in order to keep the hammer to try and score multiple points in in the tenth end with the hammer. Yeah, and this is fascinating to me, right? Because there's also at the same time there's been an analytics movement in curling that's kind of looked at like what's the most strategically advantageous and the numbers, the analytics still say you're better off being up one without hammer than down one with hammer in the last end. So the analytics actually say you're better off leading and not having last shot than uh, being behind with having last shot in a game. And most of the top teams will still choose to have last, last shot. They, they won't go with the analytics, which to me is a kind of a fascinating Fascinating debate there. Um, so you saw, you actually saw this, that Jen Jones in the Canadian Olympic trials opted to give up one in the ninth end in order to have hammer in the 10th end. She then missed her shot in the 10th end to win, but then stole without hammer in the 11th end. So that was kind of interesting there. And then the other one that was kind of interesting is Carrie Anderson. It wasn't a nine, it wasn't a 10th end situation, but in the, this, the is a, this is another player at the Canadian yeah. Olympic trials, right? Yeah, so they they'd won the they'd won the Canadian championship the two years pri- previous. So they were one of the favorites going into the trials. They got stuck at a tiebreaker, and they opted to score one point only with Hammer in the eighth end because it put them up two. And that that was an analytics call because that's like the analytics say do that all day. But a lot of the commentators were kind of surprised by it a bit, saying surprised she's not blanking and, and trying to hold on to the Hammer and score two. So I I think. I'm actually curious if any of the teams at the Olympics switch gears and use the analytics and lead into that, or if they keep with the conventional wisdom that you want last shot no matter what. What would you do, Jonathan? Well, I would go with the analytics because I'm not Kevin Cooey. Who's Kevin <laughs> so, Cooey? Kevin Cooey is like, you know, one of the top curlers of the last decade. And so he's, there's, I can think of several kind of big game situations where he's thrown his stone away to have last shot and then pulled off a spectacular shot at the end. I'm not that, so I, I play the percentages for sure because um, I'd rather play the odds than uh, bet on my ability to make a triple, a raise triple takeout with my last one. What would you do, Alex? Would you rather have the hammer down one or be up one and have the other team have hammer in the last end? Well, I can't really even imagine myself being able to make the shot. So uh, that's me specifically, but say like, you know, I'm, I'm coaching a team Oh boy, I, I would. I think I would rather have hammer. I think I would rather have the the idea that you can control whether you win or lose. You know, in your hands. Just like you know, if you you, if, granted, you're not tied, but you know, whether it's football, basketball, even uh, you know, in baseball, you know, the chance to go last um, and really kind of dictate, make it that. So it, it, it's your your controlling what happens you know if it doesn't work it doesn't work but at least you had the chance to do it yeah that's kind of where i fall too i don't want to have to look away while someone else is determining my fate (laughs) all right jonathan before we get out of here two things first is there any strategy around sweeping i wouldn't say strategy around sweeping um i mean i think 
one thing to note is that there's a lot of what's called carving now, which is making the stone curl a bit more. So sometimes teams will try to use that to get a stone a bit more buried. What's that mean? So it basically means you're increasing. So basically curlers have figured out ways with how they angle the sweeping of the brush and how they put the pressure on the brush that makes the ice a bit more favorable for a stone to curl more. And some of the top teams have gotten very good at doing this to try to get the stone to curl more behind a guard to make it hard for the other team to get at. And that's why you'll sometimes see one person brushing or one person sweeping rather than two. One person sweeping, and sometimes you'll see it where you think they've missed the shot, but they're trying to do it to to make it curl a bit more at the end. All right. And then I guess... Give us some ideas of you know if you're if you're someone who likes to see a lot of a lot of rocks in play like likes to see offense who do we need to watch and if you if you're a fan of defense who who are your teams? Wow. Okay. So offense, I think you've already named the the top offensive player would be Jennifer Jones, who's at the and Olympics. I, yep. And I think the U.S. men's skip John Schuster kind of falls into yeah. this as well. Yeah, I think John Schuster plays a very aggressive style of play. So they're probably the two most aggressive teams there. Uh, I think, I don't know if Brad, I wouldn't say Brad Gushu's majorly defensive, but um, he definitely plays, a, he's basically known as um, playing a st- style that I was talking about before, where they'll try to set things up very aggressively, but if it doesn't work for them, they'll bail very quickly. So they will play a style where the, the first eight to 10 stones will all be thrown into the rings. And if they don't like the angles, they'll throw it as hard as they can and clear everything out. So he's kind of a classic defensive player. I think Bruce Moet's very interesting because he's the team from team GB. He's a very, he's, he's basically came up playing mixed doubles, uh, which is the two person version of the game. And because of that, that basically is almost always draws into the forefoot just because that's what the rules say. Okay, oh we didn't get into mixed double strategy, but we also don't have another 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> because, because that style of play is all draw into the forefoot, he's gotten very, very good at creating little angles in the forefoot and setting up pockets. And I think one of the reasons that team has been so dominant the last two years is he's taken some stuff from mixed doubles and applied it to the, the four-person game. Uh, Eve Muirhead, I'd say, is a bit more defensive. I'd say she's kind of got a reputation as being a defensive player, so the other British skip. I'm trying to think who else might... Who do you think is a top defensive curler, right? Um, I would Would you call Nick, Nicholas Adin the skip of the Swedish men's team? Would you call him more defensive? It seems like he prefers a lower-scoring game, prefers a more wide-open game, especially against other top skips. Yeah, I think... I think that you'll get a I my as I said before, I think the men's playoff round will be very defensive. I think in the round robin the men's teams are a bit more aggressive, but in those close games they're playing just to kind of get that little angle, that little advantage. I mean, the, the, I would say that the top hitting team on the women's side would be the Swedish team. Mm-hmm. I agree. In terms of like throwing the straightest stone, throwing it hard, definitely team Hasselberg. All right, what what other questions do you have, Alex? One thing I was going to ask, though, is say when it gets down towards the end and in other sports, you hear kind of the terms of either playing to win or playing not to lose. Um, Hmm. How much of that does that come into curling? Of course, I know some of it is is so much of it is dependent on on who has the hammer. Um, But 
could are there teams who can get burned maybe for getting a bit too conservative with the lead near the end? I think so. So I, I think with Five Rock, so back back before we had the free guard zone, the dominant strategy in the nineties was get a lead and then just hit the other team into submission. So and then that's basically curling's version of the prevent defense, right? But you know, as the old joke goes, it prevents you from winning, right? So there's there's a bit of a bit of that. I think with five rock free guard zone, because there's you're always gonna be guaranteed to get at least a couple of stones early on that the other team can't touch. That always means the team that's behind has a chance to kind of claw back in. We've seen that a lot as teams have learned the five watt rock uh, free guard zone this uh, throughout the last four years at Worlds. You've seen a lot of of comebacks that, quite frankly, would not have happened four years prior. Yeah, and I think like, one of the things you would have seen before the five rock free guard zone is the team that had a lead would throw their first stone through because they didn't want to give the other team something to score with, but that's also a very boring shot for the fans. They're just like throwing something away. You almost never see that now. So that's been taken out of the game because I think the top teams recognize you can't use that kind of defense as a strategy anymore. All right, Alex, thank you so much for joining us. Do you want to let everybody know if you want to be found on the internet where people can find (laughs) you other other than obviously listen to all of the broadcasts, uh, all of the radio broadcasts of the Oklahoma city Dodgers uh, every summer. Yeah, I mean, for those who are listening to this, I don't know how interesting they'll find my Twitter feed because it's probably 90, 95% about baseball. Uh, but uh, AZ Friedman, F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N, is where you can find me on Twitter. Uh, like Ryan said, Oklahoma City Dodgers, OKCDodgers.com, and, and all that good stuff. So, so uh, you can find me. I'm not that hard to find. I still listen to the occasional game. I have to keep – I have to – I have to follow the hometown team a little bit, even though I'm not in Oklahoma City anymore. We appreciate it. And uh, they're getting longer and longer, unfortunately. (laughs) And uh, we'll we'll see if that changes, though. Alex, thank you again. And thank you to everyone for listening in. Uh, If you enjoyed this show, please leave a review or tell a friend about us. It's how our show grows and it's how we share our love of this great game. Uh, If you have any complaints, please tweet at Jonathan. All right. Thank you so much. And uh, we will talk to you again real soon.